This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Do you want to enable eco-design in your product development? With Makersite, you have automated lifecycle assessments and product criteria like cost, compliance, and risk in one place to make better products faster. For more information, please visit makersite.io. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Shell's new plan to bolster sustainable aviation fuel, how Walmart aims to become a circular packaging matchmaker, the woman leading GreenBiz's European expansion, and navigating the Bermuda Triangle of Sustainability Communications. We're taking a deep dive this week on 350. It's August 26, 2022, as another summer slips away. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're glad to have you with us. Heather Clancy's off for a couple of weeks, so sitting in once again is my favorite substitute co-host, Green Biz Senior Analyst, Dylan Siegler. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Joel. Favorite substitute. This is a new honorific that I was not expecting. <laughs> well, uh, you know, yeah, it, it just has the benefit of actually being true. <laughs> So <laughs> happy to have you joining me uh, this week. Um, but lots going on on your plate uh, and, and on our collective plate, uh, Dylan. But uh, you know, coming up, uh, first of all, uh, in just two or three weeks is the first ever meeting of the Green Biz Executive Network Europe taking place in Paris. Um, I'm looking forward to being there with you and, and with Pete May and with Laurie Gustavus, who is the... Uh, their newest uh, hire uh, and who's directing our European expansion. It is going to be an absolute blast. And I think we're, I think we're really most looking forward to bringing the magic of the Green Business Executive Network experience that has been such a big part of so many U.S. sustainability professionals um, network building and knowledge building and shared learning building um, to the European context where um, our our strange American ways of doing things might immediately be a little bit, let's say, uh, unusual. Um, but I think we'll be able to, to bring our European friends along into a, a kind of more casual, more social way of getting work done um, that doesn't involve homework and task forces and um, and and those sort of initiatives that we hear so often from our, our European friends, they've got a, enough of. <laughs> so um, I think what, what the Green Biz Executive Network in Europe is trying to do is really create a forum, a place for folks to have support network and um, a group of peers that they can really confide in around what's tough, um, what's what's really wicked in your world. And um, in Europe, they deal with a lot of regulatory compliance issues that start to, that kind of come down from the heavens. And um, how do you how do you navigate those when you're working inside a, a big European corporation or a multinational? So 
Anyway, really, really excited about Lori's leadership of, of this initiative um, on our side and um, can't wait to meet the uh, the first victims when we get to Paris. <laughs> yeah. And we've got a piece coming up a little bit later in this episode with Lori Gustavus uh, talking about, uh, uh, well, first of all, her and, and her vision for what's going to be happening in Europe, not just with the executive network, but who knows beyond that? Well, she knows, and we'll hear more about that pretty soon. Um, and and I have to ask you, Dylan, how's the programming for Green Biz 23, which is your baby? Uh, how's that going? It's a, it's a very messy, unformed baby right now. Um, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound good. We're doing all of the sort of background prep. And I think some of your listeners will have been on calls with me to particularly get our arms around the breakout program. And one of the things that we're pulling together are these brain trust meetings where we bring in NGOs and trade associations and experts in the field to to give us a sense of what they see as the, the primary topics that we need to cover in February. It's a way of us kind of checking our biases and also kind of confirming our hypotheses about um, what is coming? What's, you know, looking around the corner, even to February can be challenging. Um, there's going to be SEC rules that will be in place. There'll be all kinds of new challenges that we, um, that we, in some cases can foresee and in others we can't. Um, one thing that came up in a brain trust meeting this week that I thought was really interesting was um, how do multinational corporations really look at the the ramifications of the war in Ukraine and what that's done to kind of energy security in Europe, how it has affected inflation. Um, these were all things that as of this time last year, you know, futurists and and analysts could see, but the general populace just wasn't expecting. So what are the things that we are not expecting now that we can kind of start to get in the um in our crosshairs and and start to to work around. Well, that's interesting because in the past, and this is will be our fifteenth annual Green Biz event. Geopolitical issues have not really played much of a part, and and you're saying that th that those are now I impacting or infecting the role of the corporate sustainability professional. Yeah, what we're hearing is that as um, as issues like. ESG bubble into the general consciousness and the political consciousness and the regulatory consciousness globally, we need to start thinking about how issues like geopolitics um, directly affect what sustainability professionals are doing on a daily basis. There are many people who are um, really looking at what the, you know, what the energy um, effects are of what the Ukraine war has created um, particularly in Europe. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a global um, violent conflict that that causes these types of, um, you know, needs, needs to pivot. It can be something a lot smaller. It can be a new task force that's created. It can be um, energy coming out of um, COP. So uh, lots of things that can, that can start to um, create momentum and, and create a kind of center of gravity that we have to be aware of. Lots of things to uh, factor into how we run this event and how all of you run your uh, professions and your companies. So we'll get more into that in the coming weeks and months. But right now, 
Let's go to the Week in Review. Well, Joel, I was really excited to see your column this week outlining the Bermuda Triangle. Um, It's the only article on GreenBiz that I've ever seen linked to the Wikipedia page for the Bermuda Triangle. So it it already differentiated itself before I even got past the line. Yeah, uh, well... The Bermuda Triangle is 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 my uh, explanation of this uh, place where well-intentioned messages kind of lose their way uh, sometimes to disappear altogether, and that's one of the challenges of of in, in corporate sustainability messaging. And the three legs of that triangle are the sustainability team, the communications team, and legal. Uh, and so uh, this is this is a big challenge. And um, I talked a little bit in this piece about that challenge and the fact that that it's it's no one's fault. It's the, everyone's doing their job, the sustainability team to have a good story to tell the comms team to tell that story for better or for worse sometimes and the legal folks to keep company out of out of trouble. Uh, and each one of them, including the sustainability teams, which sometimes have you know, want to celebrate incremental things that aren't really all that interesting to the larger public, but maybe you're pr- even though there may be proud moments by the company. So the question is, you know, how do we address this? And uh, of course, you know, Dylan, that we're you and I are taking the lead on organizing uh, a summit at the Green Biz 23 conference called the Green Biz Comms Summit, the first ever and uh, hopefully not the last, where we're going to bring together the different parties, uh, sustainability, comms, and legal teams to uh, spend about uh, eight hours over two days uh, really digging into some of the the hardcore challenges and doing some hands-on exercises and stuff like that. Really, really pumped for this summit. And um, we're hearing from our friends across the sustainability profession that this is just coming at exactly the right time where um, particularly around communicating big goals and kind of the progress to those goals, all of that is simultaneously getting lost in the sort of, you know, in the ether of of B2C communications and and getting um, kind of eviscerated by those who um, don't believe that corporations are doing enough or see these goals and and their progress as brainwashing. So you, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in sustainability communications. And we want to try and get to the, you know, get to some nuggets of truth about how we can start to get past this, um, you know, these hurdles. Yeah, I don't know that we get past them, but I think we just, you know, how do we not get tripped up by them? The, the um, yeah, communications on sustainability has been fraught for decades, really. Uh, I mean, as long as I've been in this space, which is decades. Uh, but now with the headwinds that you described, the the political headwinds, the the, the activist headwinds, uh, the regulatory headwinds, uh, the different standards. Uh, it's it's harder than ever to say what you mean and do it in a way that is not just going to pass legal scrutiny or regulatory or activist scrutiny, but it's actually going to make a difference to the audience that you're communicating to. I don't know if any company has yet gotten it right, or you know some of them are doing a better job than others. 
And as these issues become uh, more and more uh, front front of mind and center stage, the ability to talk about them is going to be ever more important. And I think it's going to separate the the leaders from what's at least perceived to be the greenwashers, even though, you know, that's a very squishy term. So, yeah, lots going on in in this arena. But let's turn to a couple of other stories that... um, are very different, but very similar in a way, because they both have to do with big companies creating platforms for for other companies to uh, address some of their uh, sustainability challenges. Uh, and the first one comes uh, uh, from uh, one of our regular contributors, Mike DeSocio, who wrote a piece about Shell's new plan to bolster sustainable aviation fuel. So we've talked about sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF as it's called, for uh, a few years now. Um, and it's largely been a supply side challenge where uh, just, you know, how do we make enough of it to make a difference? Right now, it's, uh, you know, it's a fraction of 1% of the aviation fuel marketplace, um, but it's growing. Uh, but but it's the capacity to produce this stuff is now, uh, uh, I don't think is yet met by the demand. And I think the demand side of this is is what's going on. So Shell created this platform called Avelia, A-V-E-L-I-A, which gives companies the opportunity to buy sustainable aviation fuel uh, uh, using basically uh, blockchain, uh, what's called a book and claim model. That means uh, all of this is trackable and traceable. And uh, it's uh, intended to create a sustained orderly marketplace for SAF so that there's no greenwash, and the accounting is 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 done well, and no double counting, and no squishiness in that. So, I think it's interesting. Um, what did you think? I I agree. I I like these initiatives that are not quite what we call a co-created or collective action, but an example of a big company that takes the lead on a topic and kind of puts resources to it and starts to put an organizing framework around it. Um, we. We've seen a lot of examples of this being a successful model in other areas. So really liking that they're applying it here to sustainable jet fuel. Um, This was one of those stories where I was counting down from the first word to the first mention of blockchain because it just (laughs) seemed like it was going to be one of those that was going to be like, oh, really? It's a traceability challenge for which we're going to operationalize blockchain? Surprise! Beyond my snarkiness about blockchain, I have some questions about this. And so, um, you know, uh, one of the questions that came up for me is if this is uh, an aviation fuel alternative that is derived from waste products um, and biomass um, and cooking oil. So, you know, each of those has a different impact profile. So I am really excited to learn more about the feedstocks for each of these fuels and understand whether there are, you know, trade-offs that might you know, make me as the, you know, fictional head of a corporation more or less likely to want to participate in this book and claim program broadly. Um, And I know that our friends at United Airlines have also been working on sustainable aviation fuel. And I believe, um, and I guess, you know, if our United friends are out there, they can correct me if I'm wrong, that one of their most important feedstocks is household waste, which is a pretty attractive model if it's done right. Um, so understanding what that looks like, I think, is going to be a big part of of understanding whether this is something that we can all get behind. Yeah, 
I actually don't think that United is yet using uh, what's called municipal solid waste, or as you call it, household waste. Yet uh, they're using uh, some some uh, biomass, some plants that are specifically grown. Obviously, they're they're not doing it themselves. They're contracting with uh, a number of of firms, mostly in California, which has a a uh, some some uh, subsidies and and mandates around uh, uh, alternative fuels, including for aviation. Um, but the idea is to get uh, eventually to municipal solid waste as an input. I love the the, the notion someday of 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 the the pilot or the flight attendant coming on and saying uh, they're the flight attendants are collecting the trash in the aisle and that will be used in fuels for a future United flight. Um, so I that's that's still a pipe dream. It's not there yet. Uh, well, thanks and, for you know, correcting so, my fake news there, Joel. Um. <laughs> It's, you know, it's it, it's all possible, and it's part of the goal. You're absolutely right, but are not there yet. And by the way, United uh, 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 is just one airline: uh, American, uh, JetBlue, Alaska, uh, and and quite a number of non-U.S. airlines are, are similarly dipping into this. Um, and it's still, despite all that, just a drop in the fuel tank uh, for for fuel use. So there's a long way to go. But what I like about this, and just before we move on to the, the other one of this kind that we're going to about to talk about from a different company, is the engagement of not just Accenture, but American Express Global Business Travel, which calls itself the world's leading B2B travel platform. Uh, thousands of companies use that to book travel and to, to have a a powerhouse like that uh, working with you on this, I think, is a big win, not just for Shell, and but for sustainable aviation fuel and ultimately for the climate. But it is early days. But let's move over to another story, um, similar but different, about uh, Walmart, as Heather Clancy uh, in her piece this week called it, a uh, there would be role as circular packaging matchmaker. And, you know, this is another one where, you know, is the glass half empty or half full or just not the glass ain't big enough. But <laughs> the, the, this is part of Walmart's plan to move towards sustainable packaging in, in all its various ways and to get rid of single use uh, packaging of all types. They made some commitments around that a few years ago. Earlier this year, they launched something called the Circular Connector. Uh, it's a called the Global Resource for Companies Seeking More Sustainable Packaging Options that they're now opening up, I think, to uh, maybe to any company, but to a much broader audience. Um, I've got mixed feelings about this story, but I'm wondering, Dylan, what do you think? I was struck by the fact that Walmart gave themselves nine years to achieve this pretty ambitious goal of 100% recyclable packaging. This is not recycled packaging. Um, and then that, so that was in 2016. And then in 2019, they changed their goal to make it harder. Um, so um, I, you know, I appreciate when goalposts are moved further away. I think that that's a sign that that real thought is going into a goal. And so, you know, they're reporting that they're now 55% to that 100% recyclable packaging goal for their internal products, um, those that are the Walmart kind of branded products. And they're 9% of the way to their, um, you know, their goal of uh, of including recycled content in their recyclable packaging. Um, 
So that's amazing, but that means that by 2025, which let's just say is not far away, they've got a lot of work to do. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where uh, the, you know, as you say, the, the glass is never, <laughs> never the right size. Um, and I, I agree. I think these are, this is one of those initiatives that sort of um, like, it's one of those things where we, I wish we were there already. Like this just seems like something that we should have been able to solve long, long, long ago. Um, but I, you know, the Walmart executive quoted in the piece, um, and I'll paraphrase, essentially says, look, we, if we knew what we knew 20 years ago, now we would have done everything differently. And yeah. um, so, you know, your macaroni and cheese container would never have been plastic in the first place. So um, we're walking back years and years of bad decisions. Yeah, but, it, it, you know, I, I agree with you that this is, is, is bold and innovative, but I also think that it, some of this is like, I'm not so sure. So, for example, that single-use macaroni and cheese container that you just mentioned, they're transitioning that to fiber-based cartons that are compostable. Now, that sounds good, and it, it meets uh, the goals or aligns with the goals that Walmart set. But how many people can actually compost? How much? How many municipalities have uh, industrial scale composting facilities? Who's separating out those containers uh, and and somehow managing to put them with the food waste or anything else if they're even separating things out at all? So you know, there's what's technically true and there's what's practically possible here and that's where i think the rubber doesn't quite meet the road uh that's not the best metaphor but um uh so uh, i think there's uh this is uh, as, as as we say directionally correct but it's it, a lot of what they're claiming to meet their goal isn't i don't think by my definitions actually getting to where we all need to get. So that, that's why I, I laud, applaud Walmart for doing this, for setting these goals, for upping their own goals, for launching this platform. They've already got uh, 175 or so companies that are engaging, uh, using the tool. Um, uh, and 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 anything, if, if we need all the help we can get. But this celebrating success that isn't exactly success is the part where I get a little bit squeamish. So Joel, are you going on the record as anti-single portion macaroni and cheese today? <laughs> um, I guess I am. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a bold stance. Um, as somebody who grew up uh, eating craft macaroni and cheese out of a, of a, out of a perfectly fine cardboard box, uh, uh, at least until I was age 12 or 14, but it was, it was one of the go-to things back in my youth. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of all of that, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I want my compostable package to be actually compostable and, um, that's not yet happening. I, I take your point and I live in a neighborhood in New York city that has been left out of um, the the rollback in of our um, curbside composting program here in New York. Um, it's not uh, it's not a mystery as you as you walk the streets of New York which neighborhoods have been left out and those are the ones that are lower income, um, higher people of color and those historically excluded neighborhoods are continuing to be excluded from um, yeah. opportunities like you know reducing their own impacts by composting their macaroni and cheese containers. So I hear yeah. you. 
and and a lot of those lower income communities are the ones that have a higher percentage of packaged food consumption and so uh, that is a problem that still needs to be addressed As Dylan and I mentioned earlier, this week we welcome the newest member of the GreenBiz team. Lori Gustavus joins us as the director of our European operations, and she joins me now from Paris. Hey, Lori. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me. Oh, so good to have you here and on the team. So uh, the first thing we're going to be doing is next month launching the Green Biz Executive Network Europe, which is a spin out of the almost 15 year old executive network we've had here in the U.S. Talk a little bit about what's going to be happening and, and where this wants to go. Yes. Oh, super excited to bring this fabulous concept of a, a pure driven network to Europe. Um, I think it's something that's quite unique to to the region. You know, there are a lot of initiatives people people gather, talk about topics that are priorities for their for their businesses. Yet, there's something that the members of the original uh, GBIN cohorts tell me that is really special to them. That GBIN is really an extension of of their team, and it helps them, you know, share. Their, their best practices, some of their some of their stumbles with each other. And it's really a support, you know, it's a support group of, of leaders in a, in a corporate setting. So I'm really excited to bring this unique approach to a community uh, of sustainability leaders to, to Europe. Yeah. And GBEN is our shorthand for the Green Biz Executive Network. Um, so, yeah, there's a little difference between the U.S. audience and and the European audience, at least in terms of how they might engage. What's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I'm really curious to find out. <laughs> I am an American <laughs> living and living in Paris, and have essentially worked uh, worked in Europe, uh, you know, with Europeans and an international crowd uh, pretty much my whole professional career. And this is definitely a, a different approach, I think, from what a lot of Europeans are used to. A lot of the European groups are around topic-based issues or initiatives. There's a deliverable at the end. So while groups are really in communities of leaders are really used to coming together, I think the uniqueness of the GBIN experience will be really sharing practices you know, not about what goals are being set, but actually how they're driving the transformation in their organizations. You know, how are they getting, you know, C-suite support? How are they getting budgets? How is the governance engaging uh, with sustainability? What I, what I hear from, you know, the many um, European peers that we've talked to about, uh, about this network seem to be a welcome a welcome situation, I think. I think there's a really a need for that, you know, kind of positive commiseration, maybe about kind of the the task at hand. Really, it's it's a it's a hard job these days to be, you know, a chief sustainability officer, any kind of director of sustainability. I think it's just a, a hard job these days. It's hard to keep positive. It's hard to recruit. It's hard to build capacity. So there are a lot of challenges. And what um, what I've heard is. Yes, we need to, in a kind of a pre-competitive, confidential way, 
um, just share how we're actually doing our jobs every day. And that's really my goal is to curate the meetings and the members, the peer group that will be that connective tissue with each other and they'll support each other to, yeah, to do their jobs more effectively and with more ease every day. Yeah, one of the remarkable things about the uh, the GreenBiz Executive Network in the United States, and we've had probably upwards of 100 meetings so far over the past 15 years, uh, small groups, maybe 20, 25 people in the room, is their capacity for sharing and, and sharing sometimes sensitive stuff. Of course, it's all done under the Chatham House rule, so it, it's not going to, you know, supposed to leave the room. Uh, but I know that there's uh, not just in the meetings themselves, but offline, there's just a lot of a lot of connectivity. So, Lori, why are you excited about this job personally, given your career paths? Tell us a little bit about what got you here. You're absolutely right. I'm thrilled to to join one the Green Biz Group in general uh, because you've built an amazing organization, Joel, with with your partners, and the team is just fabulous. I think there's a real need in the U.S. and in Europe to just to have more um, convening of like-minded, let's say, champions of sustainability. The more the more people that we can, you know, get around the task at hand, you know, confronting the climate crisis, transforming our businesses for the planetary economy, the better it's going to be. And GreenBiz has done an exceptional job at being that gravitational force for people in the field like myself and, and many others to to come to the events or engage with you know greenbus.com and read uh, the analysis listen to your podcast and and the newsletters etc so for me it's like the it's like the source i've actually <laughs> said to people they're saying where, where are you going what is greenbus.com i was like well you kind of consider it's a little bit like the New York Times for sustainability. It's like everyone reads, you know, green biz when they need to, you know, understand what's happening in our field. And we know that it's just evolving at a lightning speed, yet we're not going fast enough. So it's a double edged sword. So, so that's what makes me excited um, to be a part of it, to now convene uh, people around these activities in, in Europe as well. Great. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. So finally, uh, the, we're la launching the uh, Executive Network in Europe, uh, September 13th, 14th. I'll be there along with, with uh, Dylan Siegler and Pete May and, of course, you. Uh, what happens after that? Obviously, the network will continue and, and presumably grow considerably from the, the first group as, as it did here in the U.S. But what else is going to be happening in Europe from the GreenBiz perspective? Well, I think there's, there's a lot that's coming down the pipeline. I'm really, well, one, I have a lot of ideas. I'm <laughs> really excited to, to, pace, to pace the ideas. One of the changes I would like to, to see, I think, would be helpful, maybe on both sides of the pond, as we say, is to start covering European news. There is a lot that's happening in Europe. There's the, you know, there's, there's the Green Deal in Europe. Europe is driven by... Uh, by policy, uh, much of it is at the, the EU level, some at national level. I think there are different drivers in Europe and, you know, the companies that that we all work with and the, that we also consume as consumers are multinational. So there are a lot of companies that, um, you know, are based in Europe but have uh, companies in the U.S. and vice versa. So I think 
even the, the U.S. audience is very interested in what's happening in Europe. And there's not a lot of broad coverage of the news in Europe. Same thing in Europe. I think there's, there's also a need from Europeans to have more digestible information, you know, about briefs of what's going on in Europe. So that's what I'm hearing over and over again. I'm really excited to kind of use my, my comms and my old journalistic chops maybe to start providing some news and work with the editorial team at greenbiz.com to, to kind of offer that news analysis and thought leadership coming from Europe. And I hope we can get some Europeans also to, to GreenBiz 23, looking to get a delegation uh, of Europeans to, to attend the event. I think that's, um, you know, the really the highlight of the year of the circuit, as I like to call it. Uh, and yeah, I think there's room for, you know, events and podcasts focusing on Europe and, and the list goes on. I think the whole green biz world is relevant for Europe. Yeah. So much to do on both sides of the pond and could not be happier or more thrilled that you'll be leading the charge on that. Laurie Gustavus is the director of Europe for Green Biz Group. Thanks so much, Laurie. Thanks a lot, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up, 350 at greenbiz.com. Dylan and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Makersite. There are only 15,000 lifecycle assessment experts on this planet, but more than 30 million product engineers. Get to know Makersite's multi-criteria design analysis, enabling product designers and engineers to make design choices without experts. For more information, please visit makersite.io.